Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by General Motors. Today's Wednesday, March 17th. Home building material prices are up, tech stocks are down, and we're focused on the race to vaccinate America. According to the CDC, 15.1% of Americans 18 or older are now fully vaccinated for COVID-19. If you include those who've received just one shot of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, the figure rises to nearly 28%, or a whopping 64.6% of those 65 and older. It's a pretty remarkable accomplishment, given that the first vaccine wasn't even approved until around Thanksgiving, and then all the missteps with early distribution at the federal, state, and local levels. It's also extraordinarily important. Widespread vaccination is what lets America return to being, well, America, along with all the economic and social activity that entails. So the big question now is what comes next? President Biden last week said that all Americans over 16 years old should be made eligible for vaccination no later than May 1st. Two states, Alaska and Mississippi, have already made that move, with several others saying they're soon to follow. My home state of Massachusetts, just this morning, announced general availability beginning on April 19th. But some are raising questions that certain more vulnerable groups, higher-risk patients, are being passed by, particularly in a state like Mississippi, which opened up despite ranking near the bottom of per capita vaccinations. So we want to dig into the current state of vaccination with Dr. Zeke Emanuel, a former White House health policy advisor and chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Dr. Zeke Emanuel, former White House health policy advisor under President Obama and chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at UPenn. He also was part of the Biden transition team. So, Dr. Emanuel, two states, Mississippi and Alaska, have opened up vaccine eligibility to every resident over 16 years old. Several others plan to do so in the next couple of weeks. Good idea? Uh, probably a good idea. It really depends upon your local supply and demand issue and how many of the people over 65 and people with comorbidities and essential workers you've gotten done before you open it up to everyone. So in Alaska, where they've really excelled, it's probably a good idea because you're going to distant communities, you want to do the whole community. Uh, Mississippi may not be exactly in the same boat. Uh, in Mississippi, opening it up to everyone over 16 could be a way of not getting enough of the minority population and rural population involved. And so you have to figure out uh, and I don't know enough about the particulars in Mississippi to know. But I would expect as we progress through April, more states will be either bringing their age of eligibility down or opening it up more broadly. You recently wrote in The Washington Post about states needing to reach out more proactively to potential high-risk populations rather than relying kind of on a first-come, first-served basis. Why is that so important as opposed to just jab as many people as you possibly can as fast as you can and we'll get to everybody eventually? So we will get to everyone eventually, but the problem is an equity concern and a concern for populations that, you know, aren't good at navigating the system, might not have time, 
might not have broadband access by which they can sign up. And I think that when you just open it up broadly, we've seen what happens. I mean, Washington, D.C. is a great example. Open it up broadly, and who wins? Ward 3. Ward 3 is the Northwest, where upper-income whites tend to live. Who does badly? Ward 7 and 8, where minority populations live. And so then you're backfilling. You're trying to target those minority populations. And it is true. You want to get a lot of people vaccinated. But it's also true that the micro network matters. And so you could get a lot of people vaccinated in high income white neighborhoods and the lower income minority neighborhoods, neighborhoods with uh, multi-generational living facilities just don't have that many people. And so the virus can spread in that area. And so equity is a very important concern here, and we should not minimize it. And just letting it first come, first serve, we know who wins those races, right? Well-educated people with a lot of connections win those races, and that's inequitable. You know, when you talk about equity, you're, you're talking about it kind of from a social perspective. Let me ask you about it from a medical perspective. Uh, there, there's lots of talk by people about this concept of, you know, when do we get to herd immunity? In other words, when we're determining herd immunity, does it have to be a level kind of across geography? Yes, it has to be across geography. But look, what is herd immunity? That I have a virus and I could spread it to you, but since you're immunized or vaccinated, you won't catch it and therefore the rate of spread will drop. And so that does depend on who I interact with and who other people interact with. So if in my geography, lots of people are vaccinated, we could have herd immunity in my geography, but in another geography, not very far away, where not many people are vaccinated, If I go there, you know, and spread it, a lot of people could be infected. So it really does require both micro targeting so that my micro environment that I interact with frequently is vaccinated, but also macro in case I go out of my little uh, cocoon in my micro environment to broader environments. And those environments also matter because if they're not vaccinated, they're harboring the virus they could be harboring variants, which might evade the vaccines. And that's one thing we are very worried about. Doctor, there was a lot made a couple of weeks ago when the governor of Texas decided he was going to remove certain restrictions, including mask mandate, and a lot of fears there was going to be a spike, similar to what we've seen in Europe, which relaxed a lot of its rules and we're now seeing a spike. Texas, though, hasn't at least yet had a spike in new infections. Why isn't Texas mirroring Europe? Is it simply because we're doing a better job vaccinating than Europe is? Uh, maybe, and it may be just too early to tell. It takes time to get into the hockey stick part of the graph, the exponential growth part of the graph, and you're not going to see it immediately. It'll take uh, four to six weeks to see that. And so we just may be looking at it too early. It also, you know, in the case of Europe, we know that a lot of that spread is driven by the variants. One of the things we are seeing, Dan, and that I think is a little worrisome is this sort of plateau, right? We were on this very nice downward graph and now we're seeing plateaus where we're not seeing a decline in the number of cases. And that has a lot of us worried. You know, we've advocated, look, we've got about eight to 10 more weeks of needing to get a lot more vaccine out, temperatures getting warm so we can do things outside where the spread is less likely to occur. Just hold on without rushing. This rushing to open up reminds us very much of last spring, and it didn't turn out well in the end. You recently wrote that vaccination alone isn't what solves this for us. And one of the things you brought up was the importance of uh, so-called genomic surveillance. And there's around $1.75 billion in the new stimulus bill for it. What is genomic surveillance and why does it matter? 
So it's looking at positive cases and sequencing them to see if they have any gene changes, gene mutations that might suggest a new variant and a new variant in particular that we should be worried about. If you don't do enough genomic surveillance, you don't know what variants are out there and they could be spreading and you could be blindsided by that. So data on what are the variants that are developing, how frequent they are, where they're spreading to is exceedingly important. We have done a miserable job of genetic sequencing a few thousand a week until recently. Many of us have proposed that you need 50,000 at least a week in terms of genetic surveillance. We have the capacity. It's not like we don't have the machines. We just have not. The CDC hasn't put those networks together. We haven't pumped in enough money and we're way behind other places like Britain. And so we've got a lot of variants out there and we just have no idea how frequent they are and how dangerous they are, frankly. Last question for you is a political one. Did the Biden administration, knowing that it needs red and blue Americans to get vaccinated, make a mistake kind of kicking the Trump administration on its way out the door by criticizing them over vaccine stockpiles and distribution plants? The Trump administration did a very good job in terms of facilitating development of vaccines. They did a very bad job in terms of thinking through distribution thinking through administration of the vaccine. And they did leave the incoming administration with not many resources on the distribution that had to be done much more effectively and especially on the administration. And one of the things we're, you know, it's becoming quite clear about is we need to convince people. There are still a lot of people who are, we put it this in broad category of hesitancy, but, you know, they've got a lot of different motivations for their hesitancy. You know, they're anxious about the side effects. They don't understand the data. One of the things that's becoming, I think, quite clear is those people need to be convinced by trustworthy messengers. And those trustworthy messengers are likely to be people they know who've gotten the vaccine and haven't had bad side effects. And secondly, they're traditional healthcare providers. So one of the reasons I hypothesize and you know, haven't investigated this, that West Virginia has done remarkably well, despite being a Trump state, very red state, is that they went through more traditional outlets. They went through local pharmacists who knew their patients, who had been fulfilling their insulin or their hypertension medicine. And so that there was a lot of trust uh, they built or they relied on a lot of trust that had been built up over years. Similarly, I think uh, as we progress with vaccines that can be administered in the doctor's offices, doctors are trustworthy by their patients. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't be going to that doctor. And I think using those local uh, um, networks of doctors, nurses who, who patients trust is probably going to be good to get these hesitant groups to adopt and and get vaccinated. And they're going to be key to getting, you know, this broad-based vaccination to get us to herd immunity. Dr. Zeke Emanuel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Nice to be with you. Welcome back. What we're watching today is LeBron James, not on the basketball court per se, but in the boardroom. LeBron and his longtime business partner and childhood pal Maverick Carter yesterday became part owners of Fenway Sports Group, the parent organization of the Boston Red Sox. Why it matters is they became the first black men to ever own a piece of the Sox, and also because this could become the turning point for black athletes owning pro sports teams, which is a rarity. Three things to know. First, 
LeBron didn't put up any new money here. He and Carter already owned a piece of the Liverpool FC soccer team via an old marketing deal, and Liverpool is under the same corporate umbrella as the Red Sox, along with a NASCAR team, a TV network, and some other assets. So basically, they transferred their Liverpool stake into a 1% position of the bigger organization, which is now being valued at over $7 billion via a separate private equity transaction. Two, LeBron and Carter are not the first black men to own part of an MLB team. Derek Jeter with the Miami Marlins and Pat Mahomes with the Kansas City Royals came first. But this one might mean a bit more because the Boston Red Sox were the last major league team to integrate. Three, and this is probably most important, LeBron is viewed by other pro athletes as a trailblazer when it comes to business interests beyond sneaker and soft drink endorsements. That includes everything from his media company to his desire to eventually own an NBA franchise. If this Red Sox deal helps LeBron eventually achieve his goals, others are almost certain to follow in his footsteps. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great St. Patrick's Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap. 